from the newsroom of the Washington Post. ¿Cómo está? Te habla Elisa Hernández del Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 1st. Today, how Europe is tackling coronavirus, whether everyone should be covering their face in public, and the linen manufacturers making medical masks. This is the front line in Italy's battle against the coronavirus. Tonight, right here, the harrowing images from inside hospitals in Spain. It's all hands on deck since the start of the outbreak in France. They're evacuating fragile patients from... The World Health Organization says that Europe may be approaching the peak of its coronavirus outbreak. And in places that are hit the hardest, healthcare systems are at stretch capacity. I am Chico Harlan, the Rome Bureau Chief for The Washington Post. I've been covering the coronavirus outbreak in Italy since February. Italy has one of the, at this point, one of the largest outbreaks in the world. More people have died in Italy than in any other country, more than 12,000 so far. And many days, even now, the country is reporting as many as 700 or 800 deaths in every 24-hour span. Italy ordered its lockdown on March 10th, and it was uh, was the first country in the West to do so. But you know, on the ground, it doesn't mean much yet, at least, because Italy's hospitals in the north are still stressed to the max, and doctors are still working without the protective equipment they need. And then in like a province like Bergamo, where... The virus has probably taken its most devastating toll. The local area can't even keep pace to bury the dead. And there are, in fact, some indications that many of the elderly who are dying alone aren't showing up in the official government numbers. But in other parts of Europe, like Germany, it's a very different story so far. I'm Rick Nowak, and I'm a foreign affairs reporter with The Washington Post in Europe. So far, it seems as if the German health system is actually coping with the coronavirus crisis relatively well. And there are a number of different reasons for that. Perhaps the most important reason is that Germany has one of the highest ratios of hospital intensive care beds per capita in the world. And when it comes to ventilators in particular, it had more than any other European country when this crisis began. It's also a country with a federalized health system. Because of this federalized structure, Germany has had far more testing capabilities than some other European nations. So that has led to a situation where Germany has been able to fly coronavirus patients in from Italy and France because they still do have a lot of empty beds and remaining capacity and they don't expect a sort of medical tsunami that has overwhelmed their counterparts elsewhere, at least not in the coming days. In the UK, there have been more than 25,000 confirmed cases and 1,800 deaths. The outbreak has even reached the highest levels of government. Hi folks, I want to bring you up to speed with something that's happening today, which is that I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus, that's to say a temperature and a a persistent cough. 
Boris Johnson does have the coronavirus and he has tested positive for it. He's he's home in his flat in not number 10, but number 11 Downing Street working from his computer screen, but not not going out to the main office in number 10 Downing. Bill Booth is a correspondent in London where a makeshift hospital inside a convention center will open this week in preparation for an overwhelmed health system. And not only is Boris sick with coronavirus, but his health minister is sick, Matt Hancock, with coronavirus. I've also had some mild symptoms of coronavirus. uh, And upon medical advice, I was tested and that test has been positive. So I'll be self-isolating here until next Thursday. His chief medical officer, Chris Witte, is sick with the virus. And just the other day, we learned that his main chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, is sick with the coronavirus. So it is spread deeply among the leadership that's supposed to get us out of this mess. And I think that's also concerning, not just because, you know, people want them to be okay and to to not be sick, but you have to wonder whether they have treated this outbreak in a more casual manner than was appropriate, both in their personal lives and also in how they've been governing. Yes. I mean, they clearly did. They all got sick, so they made some kind of mistake. The spin from their aides is, oh, look, oh, oh, it's a not, look, the virus doesn't discriminate. It can strike the, the prime minister as well as the, you know, the footman. They say that the peak is coming in the next two or three weeks. The government has been, I have to say, a bit of a mixed messenger. They're telling us everything is okay, but things are going to get much worse uh, faster. And so they say, well, there's plenty of available capacity in the NHS, National Health Service hospitals here in London, for example. And then we asked the medicos, well, how much is that? Well, we have 3,000 available beds. Well, 3,000 available beds does not sound like a whole lot when you're expecting, you know, tens of thousands of cases. So we're getting a little bit of the the NHS is ready. And they're also telling us the NHS is about to be overwhelmed. So we're, we're hearing both. And what kinds of steps are they taking to prepare for that eventuality where they do get overwhelmed? Well, they're they're bringing in retired doctors. They're graduating medical school students early. They're erecting uh, temporary hospitals around Britain. Uh, the first one is uh, set to open in the Excel Convention Center in East London uh, this week, probably Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. And that is a 4,000-bed hospital that they put in a convention center that previously – has like uh, the comic book conventions and dog shows. And I think this week was scheduled to have a, a big wedding expo. And the other thing that I think is is both kind of inspiring, but also kind of freaks one out, is at this new convention center, they said, well, we'll have nurses and doctors there, of course, from the National Health Service, but we need a lot of volunteers. And so those volunteers that are going to uh, clean the bedding and, and help serve meals and do other things will be flight attendants from EasyJet and from Virgin Atlantic. So that's a great thing, but that's also, that's a flight attended by a hospital bed. So it it shows you kind of where things are at here. And so as the UK is trying to deal with this looming and, and growing problem, how have their interactions been with the rest of Europe? Like, are they working together with other European countries to try to combat this? Or is it just everybody kind of on their own? It's a little bit more everyone kind of on their own. 
The UK was invited to participate in a purchasing uh, plan for ventilators, and it declined or forgot to do so. Uh, so, it, it, so it's not in, involved in that, which a lot of people here have criticized the Johnson government for. And in Europe, on the continent, there is some sharing, but it, it is a lot of Spain taking care of Spain and Italy taking care of Italy and Germany taking care of Germany. There is some help. German hospitals have taken some French patients recently from the Alsace region in eastern France. They have done that. But mostly each individual country is confronting this on its own. And why do you think that is? Like, why hasn't there been more close coordination, especially as all of these countries are are facing the same problems? I wouldn't say it's been a failure of the EU yet on that point, but it's very much of each country taking care of its own. Each individual country has its own healthcare system, so that's part of the reason why. And there's there's great diversity in healthcare systems. There's a lot of difference between the number of beds and and ICU wards and ventilators in Germany versus France. I mean, they do have their individual systems, and so that's caused some of the differences in probably caseload and probably probably maybe even in mortality. They're not completely going it alone, but they're not, they're not going it as a union in terms of a European union. And how does that intersect with Brexit? Because it feels like we talk a lot about Brexit when we talk about like immigration or when we talk about like money and finances of European countries. But a lot of the reason why the European Union came about in the first place was to deal with crises kind of like what is being dealt with right now. Are people in the UK starting to see the effects of being somewhat more closed off from the rest of Europe as they're dealing with this public health crisis? Yes. The British health minister did not participate with his European counterparts on EU planning because, as the government here said in kind of a snippy tone, well, we're not in the EU anymore. We have left because of Brexit. So they didn't participate in that continent-wide, European Union-wide planning to deal with this crisis, and that, that might come back to haunt them. Bill Booth is the London bureau chief for The Post. It's obviously an exceptional moment. People are drawing comparisons to World War II and, and, and suggesting that the continent hasn't faced a challenge of this magnitude since then. I'm Ishan Tharoor. I'm a foreign affairs writer at The Washington Post and anchor of today's Worldview, The Post's daily international affairs column and newsletter. The European Union as a whole is obviously under a lot of stress. Uh, you've seen governments uh, in across the continent put forward pretty hefty stimulus packages because they're already feeling a great deal of economic pain. But 
there are also pronounced divisions emerging within the bloc as various policymakers and politicians uh, think about how to deal with what's to come in the months and years ahead. And what do those divisions look like? Well, for years, the underlying tension in European politics has always been this this fundamental question of national sovereignty versus greater European integration. And the coronavirus and the reactions to the spread of the coronavirus has exposed that tension once more in various ways. On a political level, you've seen, of course, borders spring up again across the continent that's famous for open borders. You've seen far-right politicians in various countries question the support they're getting from other member states, and then once more make the case that this is why fundamentally we as nation states in Europe are alone and need to fend for ourselves. And you've seen, of course, some politicians really take advantage of the crisis in a certain way. In Hungary, the country's illiberal prime minister, Viktor Orban, who's been ruling for more than a decade, enacted a sweeping emergency law that essentially gives him the power to rule by decree indefinitely and has led many critics to declare that Hungary's democracy is dead. That's something that's been enabled by the coronavirus pandemic. And it's also exposed on a certain level uh, Europe's broader inability to prevent this kind of democratic backsliding. Hungary can do what it's doing because it knows that it will have allies elsewhere in Europe shielding it from real punishment by the European Union. So it feels like this is a moment where the European Union is facing something of an existential crisis, that the whole point of the idea of the European project was about mutual cooperation, especially in times of crisis. But right now, it seems like that idea is being put to the test and in some ways is failing. Absolutely. I I think the, the best illustration off that sense of existential crisis is playing out right now in a contest between two competing camps in Europe. On one hand, you have a block of nine countries, and that block may grow, led by France, Spain, and Italy, that are seeking in this time of crisis to build a new kind of continental-level structure that would allow countries to share debt. And that would essentially mean that a country like Italy or Spain that's been really badly hit by this crisis can push forward more ambitious stimulus spending in the future without necessarily hurting their own economy as much as they may have in the past when other crises hit. Now, opposing this are the sort of what's been dubbed the frugal four of Germany, the Netherlands, Austria and Finland. These are countries that are traditionally wealthier and more skeptical of having to bail out other European countries. And the disagreements between these two camps have been pretty vociferous this week. And it's led many European officials in various countries to say that if we can't even put forward this sort of structure at a time of unprecedented crisis, what does European solidarity even mean? And, you know, what good are our sort of lofty, transnational ambitions that fuel so much of European politics. And so it is a rather existential question. Ishan Theroux writes about foreign affairs for The Post.
Tuesday night, the White House put out a grim new estimate for the number of Americans who will die from coronavirus. They're projecting between 100,000 and 240,000 deaths. When you see 100,000 people, that's at a, and that's at a minimum number. Now, what we're looking at, and as many people as we're talking about, whatever we can do under that number and substantially under that number, we've done that through really great mitigation. We've done that through a lot of uh, very dedicated American people that, uh, you know, 100,000 is, is, according to modeling, a very low number. In fact, when I, I think with the these number, predictions, it's just really hard to know. Alina Sun is a health reporter with The Post. I think what you can remember, think back a couple of months, even though it feels like it's been years, is that not that long ago, the president said that by this time, the virus would be gone, like a miracle, disappear. The virus, they're working hard. Looks like by April, you know, in theory, when it gets a little warmer, it miraculously goes away. I hope that's true. But we're doing great at our- the Centers for Disease Control has been looking closely at ways to lower the predicted number of deaths. And on Tuesday night, Lena broke news about internal CDC memos that suggests that they're rethinking their policy on masks. So the official guidance has been that wearing a mask if you're a healthy person is not necessary. What the CDC has been thinking about in recent days are non-medical face coverings, cloth masks. And the reason the thinking on that has changed is there is increasing evidence that people who are not showing symptoms can spread the disease. What I don't understand is that up until this point, what I've heard about things like cloth masks or having a bandana over your face or or some of the more DIY stuff is that it isn't actually effective in keeping the virus out of your face or out of preventing you from breathing in something that could be dangerous. So how does that square with why they're considering this as an option now? If I'm infected and I'm asymptomatic, If I'm wearing something, it's a barrier for the droplets if I cough or sneeze to get on your face or your hands or your, you know, anywhere close to you. And the idea is that you would still use social distancing of at least six feet, even when you're wearing such a cloth mask. So theoretically, if you're putting on like an at-home mask, the point is not to protect yourself from the virus. It's to kind of keeping your spit and your breath and anything that you sneeze, like keeping it inside so that it doesn't hurt somebody else, theoretically. Correct. The cloth mask does not protect the wearer, but it can help prevent the spread of the virus from the wearer to other people. And that's the idea behind it. You see it's very common in Asia. And one of the reasons why this may be hard in the United States is mask wearing is not common here. In Asia, it's very culturally acceptable for people to wear masks and people do it all the time, especially not in pandemics. They do it when they have a cold and flu season. Here, I think when some Asian Americans wore masks because they wanted to protect other people from getting sick, they were attacked. Hmm. You know, there was there was a lot of racism directed against people wearing masks because, oh, this is a bad person. 
And I can even remember earlier on during this crisis, maybe like the end of January or early February, being on airplanes or going through airports and seeing occasional people wearing masks and and sort of rolling my eyes or, or thinking that that was an excessive measure. But what we're talking about here, if the CDC does pass this guidance or make this their official suggestion for what people do, I think that would be a pretty radical shift in our culture of how we can protect ourselves and what people are expected to do when they're in public. A, it would be a change from official policy, but it would also be a shift in behavior. But at the same time, we are in this unprecedented health crisis and this thing is not going to go away. It's not going to magically disappear. You've already heard the health experts like Tony Fauci talk about a second wave. Would this possibly become a, a seasonal cyclic thing? And I've always indicated to you that I think it very well might. Even if we get through this first hump and the cases start to go down, it's likely that everybody is talking about a second wave. It's just a matter of when it would come in the fall or sooner than the fall, it would tick up again. And and so if the CDC is considering this now, how quickly could they potentially come out with an official policy change on this? So... Here's how it works now. The CDC had drafted this guidance and they have sent this up through the chain to the Department of Health and Human Services and to the White House Corona Task Force. All decisions are made at the White House Corona Task Force level and they can decide whether they want to adopt this policy or they could decide not. At the last two press briefings by the White House, The president has been asked about this. He said that this wouldn't be done forever, but it's something that he seemed to be open to. But what I don't understand is, like, why are we having this conversation now when we're in the middle of this crisis rather than having it a month or two months ago when it actually could have been put in place to prevent the spread from getting to the point where we are now? Like, it seems like this is pretty late in the game to be considering something that could actually have a pretty big effect. There's still no consensus, right, whether widespread use of these face coverings would make a significant difference. And there are experts who worry that masks would give people like a false sense of security and make them not do the social distancing. But at the same time, internal memos that I obtained that discuss this show that the reason CDC is thinking about this more and had even drafted guidance that could go up on the website if it gets approved by the White House is that asymptomatic transmission is playing a role in this outbreak. But if you had something covering your face, then that would be a barrier and it would help prevent that spread. So let me ask you this. Should I start wearing a mask when I go out to the grocery store or to take out the trash and stuff? Or are are you wearing masks outside now? So I think this raises the question of like, what kinds of face coverings would be recommended for the general public? Um, And in the memos that we got from the CDC, they describe cloth ones that could be multi-layered that would have to secure over your ears and above your nose and it would be something that you could throw in the washing machine and the dryer without any damage. Lena, thank you so much. Thank you, Martine, and I hope you stay safe and wash your hands. Thank you. You too. Lena Sun covers infectious diseases for The Post.
And now, one more thing. Okay, I'm Glenn Cameraman. I live in Houston, Texas. And I have a manufacturing company here in Houston. The Cameramans have had a family business in Houston for decades. Manufacturing table linens for clients like Princess Cruise Lines, Marriott Hotels, and other big hospitality firms. They are one of the last made-in-the-USA linen manufacturers in the country. My name is Arelis Hernandez, and I'm the border correspondent for The Washington Post, based in Texas. When customers started canceling their table linen orders, the cameramans knew they were in trouble. I was trying to be a little original here and thinking, well, maybe I'll get the uh, mask, surgical mask or the facial mask business. And, and so that's what we tried to do. Over text messages, they discussed a plan and a possible prototype. Hilda Garcia, their head designer, experimented with scraps of fabric at home with her own sewing machine. Then they took the prototype to an urgent care facility for review, and they ordered a hundred of them. We're literally trying to figure out how can we automate it, but right now we're literally making them handmade right now. But we've got about 5,000 to make, and I expect to be finished with those in the next two or three days. The shift to masks won't offset their losses. The owner, Glenn Cameron, isn't taking a salary. He doesn't want to lay off his longtime employees. You know, I need I need work for my people. I'm very concerned about them. And uh, I get very emotional about this. But anyway, uh, we're hanging in there. These people need to eat. And we're doing our part down here to help all we can. And, and that's what it's all about. Though it's a different product, it fits with the ethos of manufacturing products here in the USA and responding to a need. That's what Glenn Cameron did when he went to Vietnam, and that's what he hopes his company can do now. I, I, I love this country so much. You know, I went to war for my country. They drafted me in 1966. Luckily, I came back. The only province of war, hopefully we can win. The takeaway from all this for the Camerons is finding opportunity in the middle of a crisis. There is still light in this darkness, they say, and a drive to marshal American resources and people, materials, and ingenuity to solve these problems that we face. I guess for them, it's a matter of will and whether people will step up to do something similar. Our Elise Hernandez is the border correspondent for The Post, based in Texas. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. The news has been really heavy lately. And if you're feeling like we are, you're probably looking for some bright spots on the horizon right now. If you see something that makes you smile, whether it's in your neighborhood or on the internet, send it to us. Email us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. 